Welcome to the Joseph Wells Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of self-improvement, systems, and society. My guest today is Oshan Jaro. Oshan spent the last five years learning about economics, universal basic income, and consciousness. In his essay, Universal Basic Income and the Capitalist Production of Consciousness, he ties those topics together in an interesting and educational way. In this episode, Oshan and I discuss the underlying reasons for UBI, ways to pay for UBI, common critiques, and much more. Oshan is the most articulate, informed, thoughtful, and open-minded person I've ever spoken with about UBI. Even if you think it's a foolish idea, this conversation is worth a listen. It may not change your mind, but it will certainly open it. Now, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Oshan. Oshan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joe. Pleasure to be here. Well, I have to say, one of the things I enjoyed so much about reading your essay and and interacting with you in the fellowship is that you're actually an expert in the area you wrote about. Um, Can you talk about how you came to be interested in UBI and the various stages you went through, to use your own words, from starry-eyed supporter to disillusioned skeptic? Yeah. Um, well, you know, as always, it's a it's an infinitely long story. I'll give you the short version. Sure. Um, I so when I was in college, I majored in economics and philosophy. Um, and growing up, you know, my father was a professor of religious studies, um, Asian specifically. So I had a lot of the kind of Buddhist consciousness world kind of around me growing up. So I was always kind of very familiar with that. Um, and I think partly my interest in economics was a rebellion against it. You know, I wanted something grounded in the world and how it worked and so on. Um, so when I was in college, my department was pretty kind of centrist, very infatuated with econometrics and models and statistics and this kind of thing. Um, and I was always very drawn to the other end, the kind of moral philosophy dimension of of economics. Um, so I was always kind of struggling looking for a branch of economics that kind of uh, you know, welded in with the other stuff I was interested in. Um, and I always kind of struggled doing that. The, the farthest I got was um, when I was a senior, I wrote a, a thesis on what was then called happiness economics, you know, trying to trying to look at subjective experience and kind of try to price it into the models and, and see how economics interacted with that. Um, that. That was more of a fad than anything else. But so I, I kind of had this difficult experience in college trying to find a dimension of economics that really um, that really made sense to me and that, re- that really felt important. So I, I went the other direction afterwards and I kind of got a one-way ticket out to India after working for a little bit. Um, and, you know, my, my spiel out there, I was just trying to practice meditation. I was very much into that world and I wanted to have uh, devoted time and space to just um, explore that and, and learn it and study it. Uh, but while I was while I was traveling around in Asia, I would always stop in my girlfriend and I at the the used bookstores because there wasn't that much to do out there. So a lot of reading, a lot of meditating, and, and eating some good food. But the the bookstores had really really good economic sections and and really good kind of cultural study sections. And specifically, I was getting a lot of um, authors and economic thinkers that I had not found in school, and I wish I had. Um, and it, it was kind of a much broader curriculum because. I mean, in Asia, you get a lot of like meditation, spirituality mm-hmm. stuff in, in the bookstores, but that leads to an interesting crossover in terms of economics. Um, so I started getting into a bit of a broader, broader study. I, I got really deep into the Frankfurt School, which is a, a group of kind of German Marxists in the mid 20th century who did a lot of work to look at the, the relationship between subjectivity and economic systems. Like their, their big idea was the culture industry, which looked at how 
popular cultural mediums kind of interacted with uh, human beings to produce particular kind of cultural trends um, and, and specifically how it operated on human development. Um, there were people like Antonio Gramsci, who, you know, Italian communist in the, in the 30s, he was in prison. While he was in prison, he wrote a set of notebooks that kind of spawned this idea of hegemony. And hegemony is a word that is used to describe how cultural mediums kind of um, propagate and spread a particular mentality that then reproduces itself through the cultural mediums and it's a kind of positive feedback loop. Um, so I, I read a lot of people that were kind of gesturing towards the way that economic systems do interface with the way people think with the human mind, with consciousness, with all this stuff. Um, and it wasn't, it really wasn't until I think I got back from, from India, as this was probably in, in 2016 or 17, um, that finally, like I, I found this policy, I found a book um, about basic income. And I think it was Rucker Bregman's book. He's a, a Dutch historian. The book was Utopia for Realists. Um, and it's a really good book, really, really accessible. But he had a whole chapter on basic income. And it was new to me. And what was so, it, it was almost electric reading it because so much of what I'd been reading, the, the critiques that are always lobbed at capitalism from people like the Frankfurt School are very abstract. They're very nebulous. They're very hard to really kind of bring down to the ground and then be like, okay, you know, what does this mean? What do we do? And so UBI to me would kind of like made concrete a lot of the thinking that I'd read previously. So I had a, I was pretty fond of it because of that. Um, and so I, you know, I got all the books I could. I did a lot of reading and it was kind of like you mentioned, it was a roller coaster. I started out very enamored with it because, you know, it seemed to jive a lot with, with the people I've been reading and the ideas I've been having. Um, but there's, you know, there's all kinds of questions, all kinds of criticisms and, you know, I've, I've never really been interested in, living to, in listening to someone kind of present an idea unless it's very clear that they're very familiar with the counter arguments. Because if you're actually interested in, in moving forward, you have to really engage with this kind of stuff. Um, so I, I spent a lot of time digging through the critiques. Um, and, you know, this goes through a whole broader terrain of, of heterodox economics and, and all this like Marxist theory. I hadn't read Marx in college and I had a degree in economics. I don't know how that's possible. Um, so I, I just spent a lot of time reading it. And if you spend a lot of time reading it, you know, you, you get exposed to both sides. Sure. Um, I spent a lot of time speaking with people who, uh, you know, wouldn't go along that way. Actually, um, I, I kind of used Tyler Cowen as an interesting litmus test. Mm. Um, he, he tends to represent the kind of school economics that I, that is generally opposed to the one that, that I'm coming out of, but you know, he's very open. He's very conversational. So it's, it's been really, he, I think he actually had a, a whole episode on, on UBI. But I've always tried to read it from the lens of someone who is skeptical, because I think that's the most interesting way to move forward. And um, that kind of brought us up to the fellowship where, you know, I'd done a, a number of years of research and I'd gathered a lot of it. And I knew I wanted a, an opportunity to kind of flesh it all out and put it all together, both the kind of pragmatics of the policy itself and these kind of broader abstracted questions about what kinds of human beings capitalism is producing and so on. And so, you know, I spent a, a number of months putting this, the essay together. Uh, a lot of feedback from you, a lot of feedback from other people. And um, here we are. Here we are. <laughs> it, was, it was a fun process. I know it was for me. It was certainly a challenge. I'm sure you felt the same challenge. I'm, I'm curious as to why you encountered these books and these ideas in India that were economics ideas and having an economics degree, you had never experienced them. What do you attribute that to? Yeah, I'm curious about that too. Um, I attributed a lot to the department I was in, uh, but, but it's not the department's fault. I mean, the, the general trend in economics since the 1970s has been a very kind of particular closed system. 
Um, and you know, a lot of people use the term neoliberalism to describe it, but there's been a, a particular move towards you know the science of economics and a particular move away from the moral philosophy of economics, which is ironic because Adam Smith himself began in the moral philosophy department of Glasgow University. I think it was Glasgow. Um, but anyway, that, that's where economics began. And there's been this infatuation with calling economics a science. And so when I was in school in you know, 2013, 2014, 2015, um, it's true, like we'd had the financial crash, which, which kind of called into question, you know, um, how good is the science of economics if it couldn't even predict this? You know, no right. one had predicted it. Months right. beforehand, people had said that, you know, all of the uh, booms were a thing of the, or busts were a thing of the past and so on. Um, so I, I was very much kind of involved in that ethos of economics is about the models. It's about the econometrics. It's about data first and narrative second. Um, and, you know, in those schools, you don't read Marx. You don't read, certainly don't read people like Mark Fisher, or Gramsci. Um, but th that tide is turning a bit. I mean, I, I, I know spe not even just in hyper-progressive schools, but even kind of normal schools nowadays, I think there's a little bit more room opening up to, to kind of bring the moral philosophy back into it. But that's probably why. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I know, I think it is becoming more popular to look at it from, from the other perspective. And I'm not sure if you've read Yancey Strickler's book, This Could Be Our Future, but he talks no. about, he talks a lot about Milton Friedman's essay, which was published like in the early 70s, right? And it, yeah. it created this immense focus on, on profits first and how do we maximize profits. And he says that, you know, that was a good thing to an extent because it got... Um, the country and, and maybe even the world to a point where now we have excess. We don't really have to worry anymore about we don't have enough. Um, but now we kind of need to make this shift back to, I don't remember the term he use, uses, but it's it's not profits first. It's more like, mm -hmm. how do we take care of everyone? Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's an interesting sort of paradigm that the United States has been in. And I think that's probably contributes to why your education was so more like technical and financial focused rather than this other side that you explored. So it's really cool that mm -hmm. you, you know, travel across the world and get um, almost an equal but balanced on the other side type of education. So I, I like that idea. Yeah. I'd like to dive into the underlying purpose of your argument for UBI. And the way I understand your position is you say that capitalism produces human experience like it produces a Ford automobile. And the way uh, that experience has been produced and shaped as a result of capitalism isn't good for everyone. It's good for some people, a lot of people, argue, arguably, but not everyone. Um, I don't think you're condemning capitalism, but I think you've made an important point here. Can you just give that a little bit more color? Because I think that's kind of hard for a lot of people, myself included, to conceptualize. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so there's a number of kind of like uh, of levels to, to look at this. The easiest one which which almost feels like a cop out nowadays is to is to look at what's called neoliberalism which would be the kind of capitalism that arose in the 1970s very much on the back of Milton Friedman's work um, but I, I, the the kind of ca the kind of capitalism I'm talking about in my essay it, it's most um, emphasized it's it's the boldest you know in that sense but it's it belongs to the entire tradition of liberal capitalism which would be a, a much longer a longer history the the way that i that i pointed to it in the essay was to use the term hypercapitalism um and that's used by the economist thomas piketty and it refers to neoliberal capitalism and 
kind of combining that with the digital revolution. So when you had digital mediums that make possible instantaneous and global information flows alongside capital flows, um, you had a, a kind of ratcheting up of the system dynamics. Um, and then it grew very intense. And especially when you think about, um, for example, the iPhone, which has now essentially become a part of our bodies. Um, it's, it's always plugging us into this kind of economic logic. And so one of the, the ways that I talk about hypercapitalism is it really increased the kind of surface area or our exposure to the logic that was always underlying capitalism. So it's not that the logic was peculiar or particular to neoliberalism. Um, neoliberalism definitely amplified it by kind of a, a capital-led development model, lowering all taxes on capital, privatizing everything instead of public services, um, these kinds of things. But it was always there. And, I, and when, you, when you read a lot of the media theorists, that was one of the most uh, fun parts of research for the essay was reading media theorists and you know, what they have to say about the way that the, how we interface with technology, um, how that is then kind of cycling back to reshape our minds. Um, there, there's one of them, I think it's Jonathan Crary, who said that what's going on is a revolution in the means of perception is really interesting. And Yves Citon, a, a, French, a French guy who wrote the book, The Ecology of Attention, he says, the way he puts it is that there's been an electrification of perception. And in all these kind of terms, what they're pointing to is that with the digit, like when I'm interacting with my iPhone, the iPhone itself, every medium on there when we're surfing on the internet, by, by and large, or more and more, we are on platforms that are governed by economic logic. These are platforms that are in one way or another trying to interact with, in us, uh, with us in such a way that they will extract value. Now, they might be directly selling us something, treating us as customers. They might be gathering our behavioral data to refine machine learning algorithms. But the, the interaction is always occurring with a kind of the underlying incentive is economic. And so you're increasing the exposure. And one of the, the guys I turned to to kind of make sense of what happens then, like, is that a, is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? There's a German philosopher named Byung-Chul Han in the, well, he first wrote the book Psychopolitics, which was kind of, he began these ideas, but more recently he published uh, The Burnout Society. And the way he puts it is that in the 21st century, um, and this is really ironic in the time of coronavirus, so we have to kind of put a, an asterisk, but he was like, our, our primary affliction is not uh, biological or anything like that. He said, our, the, the defining affliction of the early 21st century is neural pathology. It's burnout, it's addiction, it's depression, it's suicide, deaths of despair. Um, and these are arising because the increased contact and exposure to economic logic is treating us, it's treating our, our minds, our perception as, um, as the factors of production. So the, the way he puts it, and he's kind of provocative, but he's like, you know, neurons are being turned into factors of production. And if you think of any factory, when they, when they go through the process of production, they accumulate waste. And so when you do that at the neuronal scale, the waste is piling up and what we're getting are all of these kind of immaterial afflictions that are very difficult to deal with, right? Mental health really has not improved since the 19, I mean, it's, it's gone down, but the industry um, has had no innovation in terms of how to deal with mental disorder since maybe the right. 80s. Um, and so there's kind of a lag between how we're addressing these problems. Yeah, that, it's, it's an interesting problem to deal with because and to kind of try to put a little more clarity onto, onto what you explained here, I think, you know, you talk a lot about the commodification of time. So when you're saying that the time spent on our smartphone all boils down to an economic relationship, um, the, the platforms that many of us are spending a lot of time on are things like Instagram, things like Facebook, things like 
even Google as a search engine, right? And they're commoditizing our time because the more time we spend on their platform, the more money they make, whether it's through advertisements or whether it's through monetizing our, our data to improve their algorithms in the, in the case of Google. So it, it's interesting. It feels like, especially people who are uh, maybe overworked, when they do have leisure time, they default to these these things that have commodified our time. So like they're not necessarily doing anything that's more productive. They are donating their free time to these companies who are benefited off in, benefiting off of them, uh, making money off of them, but then not contributing back to them by um, giving them some time back. And I think mm -hmm. that's one of your major points of UBI is that time has been commoditized and the, the very wealthy in society and the big companies have benefited off of that. And they should, in the form of a UBI, give some of that time back to people at, at the lower level. Um, yeah. Can you maybe kind of just tighten up what I said there and, and add your points to it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So one of the things I wanted to focus on in that essay, there, there are a number of kind of common advocacy perspectives for UBI, uh, automation, poverty, inequality, these kinds of things. But ever since like my, my initial interest in UBI, there was always something about time. I, and I never knew how to phrase it and I still haven't figured out the best way to do it. But the way I talk about it in the essay is, is like you said, the term decommodified time. Mm. Um, so it's interesting. Yeah, ever since the dawn of kind of industrial capitalism, the, the story was that as economic progress kind of carried on, um, the ratio of our time that of between labor and leisure would shift towards leisure, right? That, that progress would um, increase productivity, incomes would rise in step with productivity, we would re reduce our working weeks to you know, 30, 20, 15 hours, um, and that the, the kind of benefit that we would all receive from this is shorter working weeks, and that's a whole story in itself. That's, that's not what's happened. It was happening, really, um, through the 1930s, through the 40s and 50s, it really started turning in the 60s. Um, but yeah, so the idea of decommodified time is really interesting to me. Like you said, when, when your time is commodified, what that means in one sense, as you mentioned, if you're interacting with Facebook, with Google, these companies are trying to extract value from your time. So in a sense, they're trying to commodify your time. But even in a, in a more familiar sense to more of us, we all need X amount of resources in order to get you know, what we need for survival, right? To pay rent, to pay for healthcare, to buy groceries. Um, and the way in which we do that is by, most of us anyway, is by commodifying our time, which is to say, we figure out a way to sell our time to someone else who's going to give us money in exchange, and we'll use that money um, to get what we need. And this, this goes all the way back to Marx, right? That was kind of Marx's diagnosis, is that what laborers are compelled to do in a kind of capitalist system is commodify their time and sell themselves to the capitalists. Um, and this still, still goes on in a very, very large degree, right? We are still very much in the kind of situation where we commodify um, the majority of our waking hours, where we have to sell it to do something, not because we have an inherent interest in, in that thing in itself, but because we need the exchange value, we need the paycheck. And so UBI as, as, as something that is unconditional income, income you're receiving that you don't have to exchange time for. Um, it can effectively function as time given back to you in the, in the equivalent of that amount. Um, so if we imagine, for example, um, somebody who's working 40 hours a week at an hourly job, let's say janitorial, right? Um, earning maybe 25, 30,000. Um, 
if you get $12,000 a year in that kind of a situation, which is a significant, that's what, 30, 40% increase in your paycheck, you, you get what, what we could refer to as optionality. It's not, it's not by default, oh, your time is decommodified. But at that point, you have a choice, right? You could reduce your working week, reduce your hours um, so that you earn less from the job, you work less time, but the UBI makes up the difference. Um, or maybe you'll choose that, in fact, you want to live $12,000 know, richer every year and, and that you, know, you want to increase your material standards. Maybe you want to get a car that doesn't suck, something like that, you know. So the, the way that I look at UBI, it's actually kind of in the same lineage that has very traditionally been of the progressive left of reducing the working week. But rather than imposing that from the top down, I'm looking at the way in which UBI can kind of give us more optionality in choosing to do so if it fits our situation um, or maybe not, you know, investing that money wherever else we would like to, um, more or less, you know. Sure, sure. Yeah. So I, I like this idea a lot. Um, but it is the one thing that really tripped me up in your essay, and it, I've been thinking about it a lot. And I think the, the criticism that I'm thinking about is if we're trying to decommoditize time, how does UBI help someone like, for, for, for example, someone in the middle class achieve that goal? Or, or maybe it's not even the right way to frame the question, but there are plenty of people making fifty or $60,000 a year who live comfortably but still need to spend 40 to 60 hours a, a week working. So their time is not decommoditized. And they wouldn't be impacted by this anyway, right? But lifting people out of poverty is great. Um, but I'm not sure that $13,000 a year, which is the, the amount that you're proposing, accomplishes the goal of decommoditizing their time either. This is not like a super coherent thought or a question, but maybe you can speak to it a little bit. Yeah, no, it, it makes absolute sense. Um, and it's true. The reason that I, I bring decommodifying time into the discussion is because if UBI were just about ending poverty, there are simpler ways to do it. Of course. Right? Yeah. Um, like, like we might get into a negative income taxes has a, a, a lower gross cost. It's much easier. It's much more politically feasible. You could end poverty like that. Um, UBI too, but UBI has kind of a, a broader scope. Um, and it, and it, it's interesting, especially when you dive into the specifics of, okay, well, how would an office administrator who works 40 hours a week like, and, and makes maybe 50,000 has moderate benefits, you know, how, how would that change her life? Right. And it's a really interesting question, right? Like on, on one hand, you could imagine that an office administrator, there's no reason like uh, for a lawyer, for example, a high powered lawyer, you can't just cut your hours. Like to be a part of that industry, there's a certain work ethic that's required. Same thing with I'm thinking of an investment banker or something like mm -hmm. that. An office administrator, you could think that if everybody wanted to reduce their time, say you had on, you know, at the moment, two on staff for your office, um, they could agree they want to reduce their stuff 10 hours a week and hire someone else part-time to fill up the gap. That's possible. Um, on the other hand, another kind of interesting dimension of UBI and one that's a little more common is to talk about how it would increase the bargaining power of workers. So for yeah. example, let's say that um, we have this woman who's working as an office administrator, like I just mentioned. She's not particularly happy. Um, I know very few people who aspire to be an office administrator. Sure. Um, but it's comfortable. It pays the bills, this kind of thing. The thought of dropping out of that line of work and looking for something that you actually have an inherent kind of autonomous interest in um, can be very scary with, with no safety net, right? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that a UBI can do is it's certainly not enough, but by raising that economic floor just a little bit so you're not risking starvation, you know, you're not risking abject poverty. Yeah. Um, it can it can give people a little bit more cushion to actually think, do I want to be doing what I'm doing? And if not, 
maybe it's a little more realistic for me to take the time and, and go look for that thing, right? Um, and then especially when you're outside of, of, of uh, labor and when you're negotiating contracts. So let's say someone's going to become an office administrator and they have UBI, right? That's going to increase their bargaining power. Now they're not as kind of um, coerced into taking a contract that they might think, ah, that's not really what I want, but I'll take it. Gives you a little more kind of bargaining room, a little more power. Um, but it would be really interesting, right? It's very clear to look at how UBI could affect poverty. It's very clear that on the upper ends of the income spectrum, it wouldn't make much of a difference. Mm-hmm. But that, that middle spectrum, um, it is really interesting. And I, I don't know, you know, and, and it's actually, I think, a very understudied element of UBI is specifically how it would affect the middle class, especially when you factor in the taxes that would be used to fund it. Like how much does someone who makes 50 or 60,000 a year actually receive when you balance out the UBI receipt and the increased taxes, I don't know. That's going to depend on the proposal. Um, so I think that that's a really interesting and kind of understudied element is is the impact on the middle class of UBI. Yeah, I, I mean, I love the idea. The last thing I would want to see is the middle class paying to pull uh, the upper class upwards. If, if somebody's going to be paying for that, it needs to be the upper class, right? And I, I think uh, you address this in, in how, how you propose to pay for it and that that's interesting. People should, should read about that. But yeah, it, it would be interesting to see how that would play out in practice. Like you use the example of the, the guy making $25,000 a year and now he gets this additional, well, probably wouldn't be 13 if it was phased out, right? But he'd get maybe say 10 or whatever. And that is a big difference in his life. Um, Maybe it does things to the economy like uh, causes wages to go up because now workers have a little more bargaining power. So, yeah, that's a great thing. I just have a very hard time imagining that the person making $25,000 a year who comes into $10,000 is going to say, all right, now I'm going to reduce my working time by the equivalent (laughs) of $10,000. Because like you and I both know $25,000 is still not – you're not living well on that amount of money. So I, I guess I'm just a little skeptical as to the amount of freedom that it would give people. Now, of course, it's going to give them more freedom than not having that money. So, well, I <laughs> think a it's a thing. it's a good it's a good skepticism because another like really important element of UBI discourse is to point out that it is not enough. Like UBI right. on its own is not going to change the world in a super desirable way. It has to be embedded in a broader project of progressive reform. Um, and so you're absolutely right. And I and I agree that if you look at the low wage uh, low wage worker, so twenty five thousand. Most people are probably just going to take the raise in their paycheck and they're going to be better off for it. We right. know poverty buys misery. Um, you know, the studies, what is it, 75,000 is kind of the cutoff where they found yeah. that uh, yeah. after which money doesn't have any more impact on emotional well-being. But you can also imagine, um, let's say that you have people who want to commit their life to painting, to poetry, sure. to writing. Those kinds of people, and I know this from experience, are very willing to live on very, very little and so this is kind of, it's a fringe, but it's fun to think about the people who will be enabled to work just a couple hours, you know, part-time job to pad onto the UBI, live very frugally, and literally devote themselves to, to a craft, to something that is very, very valuable to them that they might not be able to sell on the market. But uh, we talked about this another time. I think it's, it's more valuable to society for somebody who considers themselves a, a poet to write bad poetry for the rest of their life and commit themselves to it than to work as a used car salesman or an insurance salesman or something. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think even if most people, if they commit themselves to writing poetry, are not going to write bad poetry for the rest of their life, right? It might take them 10 years 
before they publish something that's just amazing and changes the world. But if, if that UBI allowed them to do that rather than work at McDonald's or work as an office administrator and be miserable and not contribute this thing that could fundamentally add to society, um, I think it's worth it. I think it's, I think it's certainly yeah. worth it. So I, I, I posted a tweet earlier today saying that, you know, you and I were going to be talking and ask people for some questions. And, and one of the questions I got was from a guy named Eddie Romanzo. And he asked, why not require people to do some form of work for the money? Now, I, I think we've spoken mm-hmm. to this pretty, pretty sufficiently, but maybe is there anything else you'd like to, to add on there? Yeah. I mean, it, it's a really important question because it's a very, very, um, common and prevalent sentiment in the debate. And right. the way I think about that when you want to attach labor to to the income is you're kind of moving in the direction of a jobs guarantee. Um, yeah. Because when you, when you ask about how would you actually administer that, you're, you're really talking about a jobs guarantee. And the two of them are very similar. And in, in they share the sentiment that you know, in the 21st century, every citizen should have access to the resources they need to meet their basic needs and participate in society. That We are too wealthy for that not to be the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but they... They also differ in a, in a number of significant ways, right? There's kind of a, a cultural evolution standpoint that you and I have been talking about a little bit that would prefer a UBI to a jobs guarantee because, like I mentioned, the promise of capital accumulation has for so long been that people would get more leisure time, you know, that the ratio you have would kind of tip from labor towards leisure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so UBI does this, right? It, it gives you the optionality to actually claim that leisure time, whereas a, a job guarantee presumably wouldn't, although I could imagine a jobs guarantee kind of trying to function within the vein of, you know, it's, it's 30 hours a week, but they pay the equivalent to 40. That's possible. Mm, and that's you, could, you could marry them in some way, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, it also depends. I think one of the most important things, it, it depends on the frame you're coming from um, in advocating UBI, because a lot of the advocacy comes from a kind of justice standpoint or a social dividend standpoint, mm-hmm. which is to say UBI isn't something that anybody should be required to, to work additionally for. It's something that they're already owed or entitled to. Um, and there's a couple different ways to, to point that out. Like the way that a good example is Alaska's permanent fund. So Alaska has a 25% tax on any oil revenues that private companies sell. And they, you know, the ideology is that oil is part of the natural resources that every Alaskan owns. If a private company is going to make money off of it, they have to compensate people. Um, and so it's not like you need to work extra in order to receive the Alaska permanent fund. It's just something that you're owed. It's, It's a social, social dividend. Right. Um, and the same thing when you talk about, for example, um, some kind of a, a government share in patents that are made from publicly funded R&D. So this is something that the economist Mariana Mazzucato talks about mm-hmm. in reference to the iPhone, for example, right? The, the initial technology was government funded in the R&D on, on the iPhone. Um, and so we socialized the risk of that, of that R&D, but we've privatized the reward. And so again, you, know, you wouldn't expect someone to have to work in addition to receive something they're already entitled to. So, and that obviously depends on how you're proposing to pay for the UBI because yeah. you know, that, that all gets, gets in. But yeah, it really depends on, on where you're coming from in terms of what is the UBI and what is it for? Is it compensation for something that we are already entitled to or is it kind of an additional kind of like redistributive payment kind of thing? So it varies. Sure. Something like the Alaska Permanent Fund is a more convincing argument to me than something like Apple who has profited off of um, public R&D because... And correct me if I'm wrong, but the way I understand it is that that R&D was funded publicly, right? And then Apple took that technology that was available publicly to everyone and they capitalized on it. So it's not like it was exclusively available mm. to Apple or they 
somehow just snagged it from the government and nobody else was able to do anything with it. They, they were able to take that technology and turn it into something. So mm-hmm. the idea that they owe society for benefiting from research that was available to everyone is a little bit harder for, for, for me and probably a lot of people to, to swallow. But the Alaska Permanent Fund, that, that makes total sense. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's a really big movement to pair up a UBI with a land value tax. And so land value tax is originally came from the work of Henry George in, in the late 1800s. But his whole idea is just like Alaska decide, you know, treats oil as a collectively owned resource, mm-hmm. land is a collectively owned resource. Um, and so George's whole thing was to replace all taxation with a land value tax. And that might not work in the modern context, but the idea is the same, right? Is if the UBI is being funded from things that are being um, kind of collective value sources that are being privately captured, that in a sense, what you're doing is democratizing returns that we're all entitled to. So again, it comes down to the funding model. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. So Eddie also had a a follow-up question here. He asks, what might keep people from demanding continually higher amounts? And I, I can see this happening particularly because the poverty line is offensively low right now so like it, it really should probably be double what it is but so so say we pass a ubi and and people are getting their thirteen thousand dollars a year or whatever um what is to keep a politician who wants to remain in office from saying yeah we're going to keep bumping this up and up and up and up yeah that's a good question um there, there are kind of two ways to to handle that the first is when you propose a ubi you generally index it to some kind of metrics. You either index the UBI to the poverty line. So as the poverty line increases, the UBI increases in step. You might index it to median income in the economy. You might index it to GDP, but you peg it to something which is going to account for at least inflation, right? And you might want to account for economic growth. That's what you get by pegging it to the median income, Mm -hmm. Um, but you index it to something. And then what you're asking is once you've indexed it to something, why can't a Majority. So let's say a majority of people in the economy are net recipients of the UBI. Mm -hmm. If the majority, you know, then what's to stop them from voting to raise it? So we actually saw an interesting example of how to deal with this in the the impeachment trials for Trump, right? Right. Impeachment, we've decided, is a very serious thing, and it should not be subject to the tyranny of the majority. So what we use is a supermajority. So you require a higher threshold of um, consensus within the Senate in order to actually pass the thing. So I could see us using the exact same model for raising the UBI. It's it, You can't have it be you know, a partisan split issue where if all the Democrats agree, we move it kind of thing. It would have to be a very serious majority all coming together. Um, and where that actual number should lie, you know, I, that, that's a question for political yeah. scientists. Yeah. But I, I don't think it would be too hard to control for that in that sense. Um, and I've seen it written about, I, w- I, I would be interested to see kind of more writing and research on the best way to deal with that. But supermajority seems to me a pretty direct way to do so. Oh, that's an excellent answer. You've, you've clearly really thought this through. <laughs> and, and I think Eddie will probably appreciate that as well. So one concept that I struggled to grasp while reading your essay, and it's not you know anything to do with your writing, it's just kind of a complicated topic and maybe I'm a little dense, but um, the difference between a negative income tax and universal basic income. And I, I saw that you've recently, or since you published your first essay, you've published another one on the negative income tax. And I read that today and it makes sense to me. Uh, but could you maybe explain that difference for the listeners? Yeah, yeah this, is so, this is so important. And it's so counterintuitive, which makes it so difficult. So think of the broadest umbrella category as basic income, right? Basic income says there's going to be an income floor in the economy. No one receives less than this amount. And then there are all these different ways to implement that. So UBI says 
um, if, if the income floor is 13,000, right, rounded up from the poverty line, that yields a monthly payout of a little bit over a thousand. I'm going to sure. call it a thousand for ease. But, um, and you just give everybody that same amount. And then what you do is you tax it on the back end. So everybody, including Mark Zuckerberg, including Bill Gates and so on, everybody gets it. Um, but on net, meaning after taxes, most people above a certain income level are not actually going to be net recipients. They're going to be paying more in taxes than they receive okay. in the UBI. Now, with a negative income tax, you're doing that up front. So again, if you say the income floor is 13000 assume that someone who earns $0, has no employment, no nothing, they're going to receive straight $13,000. And then every dollar they earn, they lose a certain amount. So for example, in, I, I put out a proposal for negative income tax and I use a 33% phase out rate. So what that means is for every dollar you earn above zero, you lose 33 cents of your negative income tax benefit. And that sets up a kind of triangle where it phases out, phases out over time so that the break-even point in that example is about $39,000. Um, but basically, it's, it depends whether you're taxing on the front end or the back end. So negative income tax says, we're just going to give people exactly the amount, um, not exactly the amount, but you get $13,000 and it phases out as your income rises. UBI says, we don't want to deal with the means testing of having to report your incomes on a monthly basis so that we adjust your negative income tax payments, because that, that's a very difficult process. Yeah. Um, so UBI says, let's avoid that whole thing. Let's give everyone the exact same, and then let's tax on the back end to adjust the distribution. And on net, like at, all said and done, these are almost exactly identical in terms of outcome, which makes no sense because um, UBI has a high gross cost, like above $3 trillion. Sure. But then most of that cost that's been raised by taxes is just going right back to people. Yeah. Um, so it cancels itself out. So those, that's kind of like the, the main difference. Okay. Yeah. Th so that, that makes perfect sense to me now. So it, it's, it's more of like a, if you're looking at it from a business perspective, it's more of like a cash flow issue, right? If the, if the ultimate cost is about the same, it's just really when you're incurring that cost. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, exactly. And what, and what I don't know and what I would love to see more research on is like you saw in, in the negative income tax thing, I put, I broke down, like if you earn uh, $12,000, here's how much you would get under this proposal, 15, yeah. you know, so on. So you see very clearly how much someone at each income level receives from a UBI that is much harder to work out. Right. And so yeah. I'm, I'm very, I, they, you know, economists will say that they come out exactly identical. And, you know, of course, economists makes a lot of kind of simplifying assumptions. In practice, I think that a UBI would wind up um, certainly kind of having a benefiting a larger percentage of the income distribution. I think it would reach yeah. farther into the middle class. Um, of course, again, it depends on your funding model. But um, yeah, that's all. I, I would love to see more kind of specific research on how much people of various income levels would receive under specific UBI proposals, because we know that for negative income tax, but we don't know it for UBI. Right. Yeah, that's, that's it's super interesting. And I really like that follow-up article you published. I, I mean, you you think these things through so deeply and you propose like concrete, this is what we should do. Um, and when I wrote my essay on national service, I, it was more of a conversation of like, Hey, this is th this idea that I'm having. These are the high level reasons why I think maybe we should try it. But I didn't get into the weeds of this is how we would implement it. And that's, what's really impressive about yours is not only does it say, this is how we could implement it. It says, or we could do it this way, or we could do it that way. And here are some other assumptions that we could look at. So it's like, it, it's 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 very good in in that that regard. I appreciate that, but it's also you know like that's what I think that's where we're at. You know, there's so much talk about UBI, and there's like strikingly little kind of detailed. Um, here's how we're going to do it. 
And yeah. of course, the first thing someone's going to say when you, when you give the idea of UBI is, oh, that's cool, but how are we going to pay for it? Yeah. And so it's strange to me that that's not, the first, that's not what we're leading with. And especially because um, it's, it's by no means easy to pay for UBI, it's, and it's very contentious, and it needs very much kind of democratic discourse and debate and criticism and all this. Um, but it is possible. It is sure. absolutely possible. So it's, it's, I think what we need to do is move to that level of to debate the specifics. And, um, the, you know, it's uh, a lot of, and it, okay, so I guess it depends on what you think comes first, right? Do you convince people of the idea and then do you figure out how to do it? Or, you know, do you kind of say, we can do it, therefore we should take it seriously. It's a kind of chicken or the egg kind of problem. But, you know, there's a lot of writing on UBI advocacy and, there's a lot of writing that kind of goes through all the funding proposals and tears them to shreds. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to not fall into that category of a big abstract criticism of capitalism, talking about consciousness and all this kind of stuff and mentioning UBI. And then you can just kind of throw that away in the folder of kind of fanciful romantic thinking. You know, I wanted to add a really kind of grounding in, in the fact that, Hey, this is possible if we decide it's worth it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And you did a great job of that. So because we're going in this direction, let's talk a little bit about what you propose um, in terms of funding it. And, and what I found, I don't know if it was most interesting, but, but what stood out to me was your proposal to roll back some other existing welfare programs. And I think your estimate said that that would generate about $200 million of the roughly $1.2 trillion that would be necessary to do this, right? Was that, is that somewhere in the ballpark? It was almost. It was, depending on how you what you include in, in that rollback process, a, a conservative amount, maybe 200 billion. I mean, we spend seven, 800 billion. Um, so that's the full. Sorry, terrain. did I say million? I meant billion. Yeah, yeah probably. And yeah. then it's, I think the gross, the gross cost of a like fully generous UBI um, that covers minors and everything would be about 3.6 trillion. So, mm -hmm. so it's a high right. number to reach. Right. Yeah. 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 So I, I guess I'm, I'm thinking more about what you were writing in the negative income tax article. Yes, yes, yes. So that, yeah. that was a much more reasonable number to get to. Um, so what, what did you specifically propose rolling back in, in that made up that 200 billion? Because I think a counter argument that a lot of like, especially conservatives might put out there is like, Oh, now you're going to have all these people double dipping. Well, that's not, that's just not really in practice how it's going to work. So speak to that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. So this is, probably one of the most contentious dividing lines on UBI debate. It's what separates kind of progressive left UBI proposals from conservative libertarian models. Um, so you have people like Friedman, people more recently like Charles Murray, who would propose we should scrap the entire welfare state and just replace it with a UBI. Um, I do not come down on that side. I think that would be incredibly harmful. Um, there are a number of empirical studies that have you know, shown that that would make the the low-income people horribly worse off, mm. um, so on and so forth. But there are people who are kind of, you know, coming from that approach that UBI is a replacement to everything. Um, so I want to be clear that that's not what I'm talking about. That being said, when you have a UBI, there are a small segment of welfare programs that become redundant. So for example, the earned income tax credit, right? This is something that was actually, that grew out of Nixon's negative income tax proposal. That was kind right. of what happened to that. But the earned income tax credit is basically just, you know, if you earn this very little tiny amount, we'll bump it up, you know, this much. Um, now, it almost happens naturally because the UBI is going to push a number of people beyond the eligibility criteria for a number sure. of welfare programs anyway. But there are things in that spirit. So there's the earned income tax credit, which we spend about $60 billion on a year. There's things like uh, temporary assistance for needy families. We mm -hmm. spend about $17 billion on. 
There's things like um, supplemental income insurance. Um, that's eh, 40 or 50, I think, I forget. But there's a couple of things in that, you know, of that nature. Um, and when you, if you scrap them, only the things that are absolutely redundant, where you wouldn't piss off some kind of, you know, big progressive leftist person, you might raise about 200 billion. Okay. Um, there are also things that are called, uh, th that we refer to as tax programs. They're really tax expenditures. These are um, asset building programs like the mortgage interest tax deduction, the real estate tax deduction. These are things that were put in in order to help Americans build assets. Sure. Um, but when you kind of do the breakdown of who they benefit, they overwhelmingly benefit you know, only the top you know, tiers of, of the wealth distribution and nobody else. And we spend, depending on who you ask, the lowest estimate and how much we, we spend on this is about 530 billion. And that was in 2013. And that goes up to 1.2 trillion. So it depends, you know, there, there's some controversy yeah, on range. what falls in there, but there's plenty of room there to, to nix a couple of those and free up another couple hundred billion. Um, yeah. So the tax code itself, there's a lot, a lot to pull out of that. So even though that would disproportionately benefit, let's say, ultra wealthy people, I think taking that away would really hurt people in the middle class because that's one of their biggest uh, tax credits, right? So even if you generate most of the, the money by, by taking it back away from ultra wealthy, you're really kind of just crushing the middle class again. Or am I wrong there? I think the way that I've heard, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, the, the way that people have expressed this in my experience is largely because the middle class is tied up in home ownership and pension funds, like retirement funds, which correct. is kind of their tie to the stock market. Um, so there, there are a couple of ways that that's true. And, you know, no progressive left UBI proposal is going to try and screw the middle class. That's a very yeah, important yeah. thing to account for. Um, you know, there, there are the basic things. Like if you look at the distribution of ownership, um, I think it's 84% of, of the stock market is owned by like the top 10%, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I actually read this recently. Someone actually broke down the numbers of like um, how much a middle-class person's pension would be hurt by, you know, X kind of um, taking out this asset building taxes. And it's very, very, very small. Mm. But the, the, the point to take away from that is I think that you're correct that we need to be mindful of, um, how we deal with capital assets because the middle class do have ties. But we also need to remember that the vast, vast majority of capital assets um, are held in the top, top, top tiers. And when you're dealing in small percentage, um, small percentage taxes, that's going to have a very small effect on the middle class and a much larger effect on, on the upper ones. Sure. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Another thing that I... I kind of have changed my mind on recently and liked in your proposal was a, a wealth tax. And the reason, maybe I'm not all the way there yet, but the reason why, why I'm considering it a little bit more is because I, I read an article a month or two ago, and I don't remember the name of it now. I'm going to have to find it to put it in the show notes. But it talked about how one of the common arguments against a wealth tax is that people who are worth tens of millions of dollars, a lot of their wealth is illiquid. So if you start mm. taxing on on net worth rather than income, some of these people are going to have to start liquidating positions that are just not possible or not easy to liquidate. And the thing that this person proposed was creating a marketplace for assets that are generally less liquid. So, so was somebody, this Gabriel Zuckman you were reading? I may have been, you know, I shared it in my yeah. newsletter, so I will go back and I'll easily be able to find it. But it, it was really, it was really good. And he proposed some, some ways that got around that argument. Right. And, yeah. you know, I think what you proposed is people, 
with a net worth above 50 million are taxed at 2% a year. And then above a billion was 3%. Does that sound right? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't want to sound like the person who's like, oh, that person's got plenty of money. They don't need any more of it. (laughs) But if you're taxing um, their net worth at 2%, it should be growing at 8 to 10% probably. So they're still getting wealthier. They're not actually becoming less wealthy by this tax. And and it, it could probably do a lot of good. And a lot of the people who have that type of net worth may not be opposed to this. You know, they, they're probably quite happy to help and give back in that way. So, like I said, I'm not all the way there yet, but I can at least see the merit in that in that argument. So, it's it's cool that you read that proposal because I mean, the wealth tax is a good example of kind of where ideologies clash on what we should be doing. Um, and and you're right, there's a liquidity problem with the wealth tax, and we actually saw that in Europe. Like a number of European countries actually Im- implemented a wealth tax, mm. and most of them failed. And the reason that most of them failed is because the wealth tax is phased in on net assets above one million. And so a lot of times people oh, wow. are arguing against a wealth tax, and they're like, "Look, it failed in Europe." But we're not talking about the same tax totally cases on 1 million versus 50 million, right? right. So there, but there still is a liquidity problem. And I don't know if it was Gabriel or not, but um, Zuckman and Emmanuel says they published a book last year called The Triumph of Injustice. And it, it basically is a tax plan designed for the, the average reader. Um, and they go over exactly what you, what you just spoke about. And the kind of high level takeaway is just that the liquidity problem is an obstacle that needs to be addressed. It is not a nail in the coffin that shuts down the argument. Sure. Yeah, that that makes sense here. Yeah. So that article was from Gabriel Zuckman. So I'll put that in the show notes. And that's, you know, it's eye opening. And it's good to expose yourself to things that make you uncomfortable. And that's exactly Mm. the heading that I that I put in my newsletter when I sent this out. Because anytime I've I've seen this type of thing, it kind of makes me squirm a little bit. But, Mm. you know, this opened my mind. So I I think it's a good read for everyone. You're doing the good work, Joe. (laughs) I'm trying. (laughs) Um, so I think this kind of ties into what we were talking about a few minutes ago with, with Nixon and the, the negative income tax. Another really good question from somebody on Twitter, Deepan Patel. He asked, why isn't UBI a unifying policy? And, and the context mm-hmm. that, that he posed for this question was that he says UBI was originally a conservative idea. Now, I'm not familiar with the origins. I'm sure you are. And he also mm-hmm. said Nixon almost made it a reality. And then obviously the left today with Andrew Yang and a lot of other people are, are talking about it. Um, can you talk about like the association with Nixon and then why uh, it's not just a universally accepted thing that like, yeah, we should do this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so UBI, UBI has a long history, but as you know, it can go by a number of different names. Um, some people trace it back to the 1500s with the church. Um, Martin Luther King talked about it a lot, but it really kind of the idea of a basic income definitely kind of got rolling in the mid 20th century. Um, you had people like Milton Friedman, who in his book, um, I think it was Capitalism is Freedom or The Freedom to Choose or something like that. He, that's where he proposed a negative income tax. Um, so Friedman didn't propose a UBI, did propose a negative income tax. So it's, it's a basic income, right? And even people like Frederick Hayek uh, supported a basic income. Hayek said something like, in a society with as much wealth as ours, there's no reason we can't guarantee a minimum income without endangering the freedom for all. Um, so, so the idea quickly, of these, these people yeah. were conservative. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Hayek and Friedman were kind of the intellectual fathers of neoliberalism of okay. kind of a conservative free market capitalism, economic orientation. Um, so Friedman had this idea of a negative income tax. Nixon picked up 
a very similar version. I don't believe it was unconditional in, in the sense that I don't think it went to every individual. There was some kind of stipulation, but it, it was basically a negative income tax. Um, he proposed it and it kind of, it fell out. It didn't make it through. I don't remember if this was because of his problems or lost funding or whatever, but it sure. didn't stick. Um, that and out of that grew the, as I mentioned, the earned income tax credit. That's kind of how that went. But so you, the, the origins that he's mentioning are the conservative model because what Milton wanted to do was replace everything, replace all the welfare state with a negative income tax. And so one of the reasons that UBI is not as unifying as, as you might imagine it, because on the surface, right, it is always billed as something that can kind of unite libertarians and leftists and conservatives and everybody. Um, but when you get into the details of how are you going to pay for it, that's when it falls apart. Okay. Because the progressives will not want to scrap everything. They'll say you pay for it via progressive taxation, whereas the kind of conservative libertarian model wants to replace everything. Um, so you, you can kind of get away with it as, to, as a unified front if you don't zoom in too close. Sure. But once you zoom in, that's kind of where the, the logistics of it start to divide people. So selling the idea of UBI shouldn't be nearly as hard as figuring out how we're going to pay for it. Yeah, and even trying to parse out between a UBI and just a basic income or a negative sure. income tax. You know, I, I think it's easier to sell the idea of a basic income and along the notion of Hayek that look how much wealth we have. Poverty should not exist. It, yeah. It's just plain and simple. We can get rid of it now by passing legislation. That's something that I think we could get most people on board, especially when you show how economically feasible that is. Mm -hmm. um, but like we talked about in the beginning, UBI tends to have a bit of a broader scope and it definitely has a higher kind of sticker gross price tag. So that one kind of gets into a, a broader debate. Yeah. Yeah. So Oshan, you, you list a few critiques of UBI and then you provide some pretty convincing arguments there. I don't want to go into all of them, but I think the free rider problem is one that again, for conservatives is like number one, like I don't want people floating off my dime type of thing. And one of the, the lines that you had in your essay that really stood out to me and, and kind of hit home the point that like, okay, we might have some free riders, but it's probably going to be worth it. I'll, I'll just read it here because it's very, very yeah. good. You said, how might this criticism change if we apply it to parents who, who choose to stay home and raise their children? Does the same sense of unfairness come into play when recipients use UBI to fund socially valuable activities that markets fail to compensate? Surely a devoted parent is worth more to society than an unmated, unmotivated office administrator or insurance salesman. What about aspiring scientists who use the newfound financial and time freedoms to focus on exploring new theories, or artists who dedicate their time to creativity? In this sense, UBI functions to extend earnings to those engaged in socially valuable pursuits that markets fail to compensate. I love this point. It's 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 really good. It's very important. It's something that everyone should think about, even if you don't necessarily agree with UBI. Let this marinate in your mind because I think many of the problems in society stem from bad parenting. And mm -hmm. bad parenting by extension could be non existent parenting from, from somebody who has to work three jobs. Right. So yeah. even if we just enabled a lot more parents to stay at home with their kids and be good parents and raise kids who um, are productive members of society, to me, that's totally worth it. I don't know if you have anything else you want to add on, on for the free rider problem. Well, 
No, and I agree. And and I think the most interesting kind of virtues of something like UBI show up like a generation down the line, like the, the knock-on effects of something like that. They're very tough to quantify. You you really, you can try, but it's very tough to model and, and show a graph that's like, you know, here's how that's going to change. But those to me are, are precisely the things that matter the most and that would have the kind of deepest influence on, you know, what I talk about in the essay is human development and like the the economic process of producing human beings and the role that economic influences play in our lives and shaping them and in kind of constricting our behaviors and funneling them in particular ways. Um, parenting is absolutely an example. Um, but yeah, that, that free rider critique. And again, it, it's a very valid point. It's something that needs to be talked about. You know, the concern is generally, you know, if I'm working and I'm going to be taxed and my money is going to be given to somebody who's going to get that money for nothing. He's just going to go to the beach or he's just going to watch Netflix, right? This is a, and it's actually important to point out, this is a very recent um, concern. Like the idea that human beings, if they find themselves in kind of increased leisure time, will waste it or will somehow deteriorate or degrade. Mm. Like that's pretty peculiar to about the 1970s, 1980s. Because again, prior to that, again, the whole story of economic growth from the dawn of industrial capitalism was that there would be this shift towards leisure time. And leisure time, and this is by John Stuart Mill, John Maynard Keynes, Henry George, um, a number of really, really brilliant thinkers, Bertrand Russell. It, the way they saw leisure time is it was time to have moral, cultural, spiritual, scientific uh, cultivation and development. It was more time for the art of living as opposed to work. And it, and it was taken as a given that human beings could handle that, that when, that when we found ourselves in that position, um, the overwhelming majority of people, you know, would would benefit from it. And of course, there's going to be outliers. Um, but when you really kind of think about the percentage of how many people will actually take UBI and do absolutely nothing, not only like, I'm not talking about someone going to become a poet, but there are so many ways that people will um, decide to spend their time if the kind of weight of economic anxiety is lifted a little bit that are still socially valuable. Um, but that aren't often remunerated by markets and the, the actual percentage of someone who would spend every day, like all of their time watching Netflix, for example, that is very low. Like sure people will watch Netflix, but they will also do other things. And even if you look at, you know, it's interesting if you look at um, productivity research in the knowledge economy, right? So Mm -hmm. when work is drawing off creativity and kind of knowledge based work, um, most of the research finds that 40-hour work weeks are way too much. Yeah. Like we, we can't function at that level in a knowledge-based system. Um, and so it's natural that there's gonna, there could be this kind of finding the balance between kind of recharging um, activities and more of a kind of generative notion of leisure, that the leisure time is actually where a lot of development takes place. Yeah, I think you're totally right there. So I follow this guy on Twitter. Uh, his account name is Four Pillar Freedom. And he was, uh, I don't know if he was a data scientist or what his full-time job was, but he started a couple websites and figured out that uh, just through using SEO, uh, he could monetize those websites. So one is like a, a personal finance website. One is for people who are trying to learn statistics and Excel, that kind of stuff. He's got a couple, like he lives in Cincinnati. So he he did like a, a visitor's guide to Cincinnati type of thing. And he's got mm-hmm. money coming in from ads from these websites that he's monetized through different articles or whatever. And he got to the point where he was making enough money to quit his job. Now, he wasn't making the same amount of money from the websites that he made from his job, but he figured when he went full-time, he'd be able to kind of get there over over a, a period of months or years or whatever. And since he quit his job, he's putting out a lot more content, 
But what he also talks about openly is his work schedule. He says he works for about four hours a day. Mm -hmm. And that just doesn't happen in, in the normal work world. Like, I mean, maybe you're only working four hours a day, but you have to be there eight or 10 (laughs) and you have to look busy that whole time. So uh, I I think that's a, that's kind of an interesting and, and powerful example of what you can accomplish in, in a short amount of time. And we don't have to spend all our time working. Well, even in an industrial context, like in, um, you know, Henry Ford and the Ford factories, he was one of the first people to experiment. He cut his factory workage down to 40 hours a week, which at the time was not, not a thing. Mm -hmm. And he's, and he saw massive gains of productivity. He's like, Oh, this is a good thing. And he also wanted workers to have free time on the weekends so they could drive his cars. (laughs) Um, there was also, um, Kellogg, I forget his first name, you know, the guy who did cornflakes. Um, oh, he had a factory out in, I believe it was Mississippi, somewhere, somewhere out there. But um, he did the same thing. And this was back in like the mid early 20th century. He, I forget, I forget what the number was, but it was less. I think it might've even been a 30 hour work week. Um, and he, he was surprised that, oh, wow, like our numbers actually went up. Um, and in most kind of uh, experiments in this vein, people find the same thing. I know the Japanese division of Microsoft did a, did a similar thing recently. Um, so all the kind of empirical studies on this have a very convincing trend. So yeah, it's very interesting to watch. That is, that is interesting. I wouldn't have thought that would be the case with factory work. That's really cool. Right. All right, Oshan, I've been ending my recent episodes with some Tim Ferriss questions and the answers have hmm. been pretty fun. So do you want to try a couple? Absolutely. All right. What book have you given most as a gift? Ooh. My favorite book in the history of the universe that I've read is a book by an author named Annie Dillard, and the book is called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. And it is the first book, I know, th- uh, I think she published a book of poetry beforehand, but it, it's narrative nonfiction. Annie, to me, is, is still the t- best example of what writing can be. Like, I, I don't know how she's human and what she does, but that is the book that I had the most visceral reaction to. It's the book that I think about the most. I've read it a couple times, but I think about it at least once a day. And, and I read it wow. like many years ago. So that's a lot. Um, she, she did something there that, that it has forever changed my life. It's, it's something that also put me on the track of, of thinking about writing. Um, like in my ideal world, I wish I want to see Annie Dillard write about economics. Like that's, that's where I want to go. That would be fun. But um, I've definitely given her out just, um, Really, to anyone, it's good because her her kind of whole spiel is God, <laughs> and she she gets right to the point. She kind of walks around her backyard in rural Virginia, looks at toads, kind of hunts um, muskrats and things. Not like hunts, but follows them and looks for them, and or looks at the tree and somehow connects everything directly to what she values most in life, which is kind of direct conversation with God. But I think she she's just an excellent example of. We, we talked about in the beginning, right, commodified time and doing things for the sake of exchange or for their own sake. Her writing is, is kind of the clearest example of turning every moment towards what you consider to be the ultimate concern. Like she is always walking around. Everything she sees is kind of a lens turned towards God. And it's not specifically about, you know, her conception of God. It's just the devotion that kind of comes out of that to me. It was really striking. Um, that and then maybe uh, Rucker Bregman's Utopia for Realists, just because it's, it's such an accessible read. You don't have to have any economics background, but it very clearly kind of goes over some, some of the more radical possibilities that are available to us today. So it's a fun little mix. Awesome. Two great recommendations. So next, in the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? 
Whoa. I've been doing a lot of experimenting. <laughs> um, and you know, these are, these are all so, they're all so trite. We all like, we all know these and we all relearn them for ourselves. You know, I've really, um, stopped drinking as much as I used to. Yeah. I, I worked in the restaurant industry for a long, long time. <laughs> it's a very kind of alcohol centric world. And I started cutting back on casual drinking, having like a random beer here and there. And I started going all or nothing. I'm drinking, I'm <laughs> drinking. No, I'm not. Um, which, which cut down the frequency and that kind of, that snowballed in with taking my sleep more seriously mm -hmm. with, with moving towards exercise and, and, the model I took to exercise was only exercise for exactly as long as you feel like it. So that might be three minutes today. Great. Um, but, you know, naturally kind of you stick with it, that lengths and over time. But all sure. those kind of spiraled together. But I, I saw that drinking less, I think, was a pretty significant catalyst in terms of being able to kind of get everything else going to. So that was pretty interesting. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great piece of advice. I've noticed that I definitely drink less than I used to also. And the, the productivity just skyrockets. You see so many people in their late teens and early twenties spend Thursday, Friday, Saturday night going out. And then Friday, Saturday, Saturday, Sunday morning laying on the couch, not doing anything. You know, when, when you're not hung over three days a week, you can really get a lot done. Yeah. But I'm also, you know, I'm conflicted by this because some of my heroes are like the beat poets, like Jack Kerouac, Alan Ginsberg, <laughs> Gary Snyder. And these guys like developed Zen from within an alcoholic tradition, which is absolutely wild. You know, so there's, I, I, I always kind of battle with myself on this because I'm, I'm apprehensive of going too heavily into the productivity world. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm always trying to keep an eye on like, why am I, why am I doing things? And, and I always kind of have a, an argument in my head with Kerouac when I'm, when I'm thinking about, oh, I should really drink less and sleep eight hours and be super productive. And then I imagine Kerouac in a stupor, like again, writing poems <laughs> to God. So there's, there's, you know, there's a balance that I'm not settled in yet, but yeah. Sure. Yeah. I like that perspective. All right. Last one. What advice would you give to a smart driven college student about to graduate? <sighs> what advice would I give? You know, it's, it's so interesting and it's so difficult to not like, you don't want to fall into cliches, but at the same time, they're, they're what's most available. I think one of the guys who did this best was David Foster Wallace, you know, in his, in his famous, this is water speech. I think that was a, a fantastic commencement speech. Um, I actually, I think I found it in my junior year. Um, that's, that's very much worth reading. <sighs> Maybe I would, I would invite people to think about two things. One would be keeping some kind of a journal in, in a sense where you begin to have a dialogue with yourself, not just as like mental chatter in your mind, which is very nebulous and comes and goes. But when you write it down, you know, writing is generative, writing is thinking. And this is all actually Perel is, is a very big kind of proponent of this kind of thing. But when you begin writing to yourself, you, you begin learning more about yourself. And that's a very generative process and kind of linked together with that. When we're in school, we have heavy curriculums. There's a lot of reading to do, but I think it's very important to keep an eye on on the reading that you would do, even if the curriculum didn't push you to it. Yeah. Um, and and not to think about that in terms of, you know, what job am I going to get, but but really try to push yourself to develop a, a familiarity with what you are curious about, and not kind of from a top down model of what are the classes pushing you to look at, or what is that job you want pushing you to look at, but ask yourself like what do I want to read when I have some time off? What would I actually like stay in on a Thursday night and, and, you know, find interesting to learn more about. Um, and I think that probably goes hand in hand with 
learning how to develop a, a dialogue with yourself and explore that a little more. That's great advice. I love that. Oshan, where can people find you if they want to continue the conversation, learn more, listen to your podcast, that kind of stuff? Yeah. Um, so I'm pretty active on, on Twitter. It's just Oshan Jarrow. Um, I have a website where I do most of my writing. That's musingmind.org. I host the Musing Mind podcast, which is also held on that website. And the, the kind of emerging inquiry there is trying to marry uh, economic theory and policy with contemplative philosophy. So I'm very interested in, in meditation and psychedelics and, and consciousness research and all this kind of stuff. And you know, specifically interfacing that with cultural theory, with economic policy, as you know, we talked about a little bit. Um, so the podcast you can find on there, Amusing Mind, the website also has, you know, the essay that you and I spoke about. I published, there's a couple of things that people want to get more into UBI. Um, I have two essays on that. There's one we've been talking about, which is mm-hmm. UBI and the capitalist production of consciousness. But I did a lot of research for that essay that didn't make it into the essay. And so I also published um, a policy long on UBI is what I call it. But the way I organize that is I set up a big table of contents of contents contents with uh, questions and the questions are links. And if you click them, it takes you to the place where I answer the question. And it's just a massive document of like every question I researched on UBI. So I I hope that's pretty useful. I've actually found it useful. I use it a lot to refer back when I'm, when I'm doing more UBI stuff. So that might be helpful. And yeah, please reach out. You know, I'm, I'm online in order to meet people, have conversations and explore things further, especially people who listened and thought, you know, I was horribly wrong. You know, that's always very productive. I'm very open to, to being critiqued and having a conversation about it. So reach out. Sure. Yeah. And I, I, I recommend that everybody read your, especially your long essay, the one you published to the fellowship on, on UBI, because it's very informative. And even if you don't agree with it, you should learn about it. Oshan, thanks for coming on. This has been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed the conversation. And it's a pleasure, man. I hope we'll speak soon. Thanks for spending your time listening to the show. If you have any questions, comments, or further topics for discussion, shoot me a message on Twitter at Joseph C. Wells. I'd love to hear from you. And make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter, The Lake Street Journal, at josephcwells.com. Until next time, take care and thanks for listening.